Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and we are going to talk about a subject that is, I think, really important to talk about. And I try to bring a guest or two on every year to talk about Christian non-resistance to the state, Christian belief in nonviolence. And I know that as libertarians, we believe in the non-aggression principle, but as Christians, I think there might be good biblical theological reasons to go further than just the non-aggression principle. And I think that case needs to be made and conversations need to be had over, you know, what extent Christians should embrace any sort of violence. And so to do that, I actually have a guest on, Dr. Michael Lewis. He is a Christian who happens to be a physicist, research scientist, theologian, historian, and author. He's conducted research in many areas, including liquid crystal physics, laser physics, and electrochemistry. Sorry, guys, we won't be talking about that today. Uh, He's also written books on theology and history, such as Christianity, War, and America's Salvation Story, Suffering and Difficulty, and the topic of today's conversation, Church and State, A Defense of Non-Resistance and Separation. He's also currently working on another book titled The New World Order, Technology, and the Abolition of Man. Dr. Lewis, thanks for joining me. Uh, Glad to be here. So as I kind of introduce things in the, you know, before I introduce you, I think this is really helpful for Christians to hear, especially libertarian Christians, to hear a conversation about the origins of Christianity in a way that reminds us that Jesus was nonviolent. And we'll talk about, I know immediately people are going to have objections in their mind about, like, well, what about this? What about that? We'll talk sure. about a few of those. But before we jump into like some of the topics in your book and stuff, just give us a little bit of like, how did you get into this? topic, where did, where do you, you know, kind of land in the theological landscape that leads you to believe in non-resistance? Right, right. Well, I grew up in a Protestant evangelical home that was quite militaristic. And I knew about the Amish and people like that, but I knew they believed in non-resistance. And I thought, well, yeah, that could, I could see how they get that out of there, out of the Bible, but I'm not so sure I need to be non-resistant. Of course, it would have been possible for me to be drafted into the Vietnam War. I was at the tail end when I was able to be drafted. And one of the things I would say is I didn't want to go on as regular army. I wanted to go on with the Marines because they knew how to kill and stay alive. I've changed my uh, attitude quite a bit <laughs> since then. Um, yeah, that attitude didn't come forward in the book at uh, all. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, what, what happened is, I, you know, for I've always taken my Christianity very seriously. And what Jesus said, you know, he meant. But growing up in a militaristic home, I wasn't, you know, I looked at it differently, you know, his commands. But I, when I was 51, I'm 67 now, I started working for uh, Lockheed Martin. And I was confronted by a book written by John Howard Yoder called The Politics of Jesus. And it really rocked, rocked my world. And I read it just before I started at Lockheed. And I started wondering, well, it was a wonderful defense of Christian non-resistance. Uh, and, and I'd never really seen one. Of course, he was a conservative Mennonite at one time. So I had to deal with this crazy thing, you know, called non-resistance. And here I am working for Lockheed Martin. I was working on uh, a uh, optical comm system. You modulate a laser beam, you send digital data over it. 
near the end of that time I was there, they were talking about putting me on the uh, AC-130 gunship, the low light level vision cameras. I was an optical systems engineer there at the time. And uh, I realized about that time, I, if I was going to call myself a Christian, I couldn't be at Lockheed. And uh, so I had an interesting conversation with my supervisor and ultimately had to leave and uh, look for other work. That was interesting and difficult. My skill set is extremely narrow. I mean, when you got a doctorate in physics and you've been doing high tech all your life, it can be very difficult to find work. And so we blew through a bunch of cash. But, you know, the way I looked at it, it was better to be obedient to Jesus than, than not. And uh, if that ended up in poverty, well, that's, that's the way it is. You know, a lot of other Christians uh, did that. But the Lord mm. uh, permitted me to uh, find another job eventually, about, a, about nine months later. And uh, that was the, the job I did for electrochemistry. I discovered a, a new, back in 97, I discovered a new method to reduce corrosion rates on galvanized steel. And a company in Canada began to sell that. And they asked me at 2000 and. Yeah, December 2006 to direct their research and development effort, which I did until COVID knocked out their company almost. With all the lockdowns, their sales went down by 97%. <laughs> so they went into survival mode. But anyhow, it was, that, uh, it was being confronted with a really good defense of non-resistance, uh, Christian non-resistance, and then having to deal with that really seriously because here I am working in a defense contractor. Mm. And so I had to figure out what, you know, okay, does it really mean that? And the things that really convinced me was when you read Jesus and uh, several places in the epistles, uh, you know, both with Paul and T Peter in particular in his second chapter of First Peter, man, it's as clear as can be. We have to be non-resistant. Jesus doesn't give us any wiggle room. And the thing that really hammered me was I went and started looking at the early church. Uh, and that, that is the church before Constant, you know, Emperor Constantine merged church and state in about 314. And uniformly, the uh, Christian church, all the writers, uh, for 300 years, all throughout the Roman Empire, all throughout the Roman Empire, were all saying the same thing. Christians had to be non-resistance, end of story. And then and, and they lived it. No exceptions, no nothing. And you know, looking at Jesus, what he said, and then looking what the epistles said, and then, then looking at the early church and its uniform witness on non-resistance. You know, it's like, man, I don't have any defense against this. I have to live non-resistantly, which means at that particular time, I had to abandon my work at Lockheed Martin. Hmm. One of the things I say is Jesus is not the great suggester. Hmm. He doesn't suggest things. Jesus, if we, if we call him our Lord, he's our master and commander. So Jesus make, gives these commands and he expects to be obeyed. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I get sometimes is, well, Michael, you're irresponsible and, you know, you're foolish. But, you know, Jesus says, uh, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. So who's the fool? Mm -hmm. the, the Christian who, who believes Jesus's words on living non-resistantly, loving enemies and not resisting the evil man. You're not suing and countersuing and so forth. The fool is the one who says that Jesus, we could ignore that. 
And it's not a really good idea because earlier in that chapter, in chapter 7, Jesus says something that's very, very frightening. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, you know, these commands that Jesus gave, and of course, he completed his revelation through his epistles, through his apostles in their epistles. You know, we get, we don't get to pick and choose. It's not like playing horseshoes, you know. Well, if you keep, you know, three out of the five antitheses in Rome or in uh, Matthew 5, you're okay. No, mm. you know, you, 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 if you're going to, if you follow Jesus, you're going to obey him. And, and Jesus says in Romans 4, and uh, rather um, John 14, uh, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, you know. And 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 then John in his uh, first epistle says, those of us who say that we've come to know Christ but uh, do not keep his commandments, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. And so it's a big deal. I mean, all of Jesus's commands are important, every one of them, you know, not just loving your neighbor and loving your enemy in particular and not resisting not fornicating, not lusting after a woman, not being an adulterer, not forgiving. Jesus has a lot to say about that. It's very serious. Also caring for the needy. You better be caring for the needy. Matthew 25 is also one of the most frightening passages where Jesus talks about those who don't care, you know, who are apathetic towards the needy. So all of these are crucial, mm-hmm. but so is non-resistance. But for some reason, the Protestant evangelical church has for a very long time treated that a bit differently. Well, we keep these other things that Jesus said, but this thing about non-resistance, you know, and not, it's not you know, practical. You, know, you, you, you can't very common one. Yeah. You can't run a nation like that. And my, uh, the early church and I would say, well, of course you can't run a nation that way because God has given the sword to the nation, those powers to punish evil and protect the innocent. But there's clearly that's Romans 13, right? And also First uh, Timothy and Peter talks about that. But there's also this thing called a division of labor among those who are saved and those who are not saved. And Jesus has absolutely forbidden violence to those who call him Lord. And so it's not like I want the state to operate like Christians because it can't. It's not possible. I mean, the state is populated almost entirely by those who are unsaved. I think in, to a certain degree by definition because, you know, violence is okay for them. And Jesus says, no, not if you follow me, it's not okay. And uh, so those are my thoughts on that. Yeah, no, well, one of the things that you said was about the wise man and the foolish man building on, you know, on the foolish man building on sand. I think a lot of Christians will have this thought that, well, okay, that sounds great. And you can use that analogy to say this, but, you know, just because you know you can't you can say oh well i'm just going to build something on solid ground but you know if someone's going to come down and you know they're going to give these scenarios yeah. of like you know how can you be obedient to jesus in this situation that's also foolish maybe your view is on sand i think a lot of times people don't have a picture of what can be real in situations where non-resistance is necessary, where there is the temptation to resist violently or commit acts of violence and things like that. So the picture is a little bit like hard to put in your mind, like the essential 
attacker in your house kind of situation where it's like, well, what are you going to do if he's going after your daughter or something like that? And it's like, you know, we, we, ha- we can have a bigger imagination and live faithfully toward Christ in our faith without entertaining just that situation. So all that to sort of say, the mental imagination, the mental picture that we have of what it looks like to be the wise man building on solid ground can sometimes be kind of difficult. And sometimes I think it's difficult because we make it difficult. And you're kind of saying, look, this is this is pretty clear. It's kind of hard to get around it if you're reading the New Testament with a plain view. And if you're reading Jesus, as he seems to be pretty clear and serious about that this is something that we have to not just wrestle with, but wrestle how to do. Not wrestle with, does Jesus tell us to be non-resistant, but wrestle with, well, how do I do that in my life? Yeah. Um, because the the choice isn't quite optional. And so what changed, though, was something you mentioned, which was with Constantine, right? Yes. Where the church-state relationship sort of got all muddied. Uh, that's probably one word to use. Sure. So I don't, I don't know if you want to carry it from there because yeah. things changed. Early church, yeah. I don't think anybody denies that the early church were all about non-resistance. And I think, you know, for listeners out there who think that the New Testament isn't or that Jesus isn't completely nonviolent or about non-resistance, you know, I understand the beliefs there, but you can check out Dr. Lewis's book. There's some other books that we've uh, talked about on this podcast as well. Right. But let, let's continue with Constantine and onward, because I think that's an important element, transition in the story. Oh, it, it certainly is. Just very briefly, there's different ways that we can talk about non-resistance, you know. And as you pointed out, one of the things that you get pushback on immediately is, what about someone trying to kill me or my, my wife? Okay, what do I do then? That that is that is certainly an aspect of you know, a choice that we have to make as a Christian, be non-resistant or not. But you know, we can also talk about war, mm-hmm. and that was what I wanted to address. In I mean, let's face it, that's where most of the killing gets done, right? You know, that war. I mean, it's yeah. just, you know, America has killed far more people, and it's, and it's also one place where American Christians are less likely to be. Uh, I want to say against, that's not even quite the right word, like many American Christians, not all, but many enough to where it's disheartening to me and to you, are in favor of war. They may not be cheering it, but they are in favor of it in a sense that like this is necessary for the sake of good. Not just, not not a necessary evil, but like a necessary good yeah. that we have to acknowledge is somehow in the grand scheme of things permissible. Exactly. But, you know, what, what I point out in that last book, Christianity, War, America's Salvation Story, the reasons we're told why wars start are always lies. The truth is, is always there, and you can find it if you dig, but the official stories are always lies. And it's always about money, and it's always about power. America's wars have never been about fighting to keep us free. That is a lie. It's easy to demonstrate from history. Mm-hmm. It's a piece of cake. It's just you got to take the time to, to to read about it and find out. And, you know, I, with regard to that in that that new book, uh, I extensively document this from memoirs of men who are in government and generals, heads of state, diplomats. I mean, I quote it all extensively, and I own their books. I own many of the memoirs of these main players and these things. And the historians that were writing about that. But but we could, you know, like I said, you can talk about, you know, Christianity's response to war. As far as, you know, personal violence, we can get into that because I have that chapter on 
you know, challenges. But getting back to Constantine, it's very clear what happened with Emperor Constantine. You know, Constantine fought a war of secession within the Roman Empire. Uh, his main antagonist was uh, Maxentius, and he defeated him at the Milvian Bridge, and uh, he became the emperor of all of Rome. That's the, the Milvian Bridge that's in uh, the city of Rome. He had a vision before he fought that last battle where he defeated Maxentius, and this vision came to him, and he, he said it was Christ, and it said, go and conquer in this sign, which is the cross, the sign of the cross, and he had it painted on his soldier's seals and had, it, had standards made that had that symbol on it, and of course, he defeated him, and he thought that was a pretty good deal. And he started thinking about Christianity, and he thought this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lighten up on the Christians. And what had happened 10 years prior to that, you had the Diocletian persecution, and it was severe. It was the worst Roman persecution that there was. Many Christians were killed. Like I said, it lasted 10 years. And Christians were really on the ropes. And so Constantine comes along. And he says, you know, this Christian thing's okay. And he legalizes Christianity. He doesn't make it the religion of the realm. You can still be pagan and not get into trouble. But uh, he makes it legal. And he rebuilds the churches. Priests have stipends from the state. So there's this tremendous sigh of relief among Christians in general. But there are some Christians that that um, are suspicious of the state because of what Jesus said and the apostles have said in the early church for 300 years it already agreed with. Most people, most Christians got on board with this and they thought it was wonderful. And if you read Ambrose and Eusebius and Augustine, the Christian luminaries who are theologians at that time, they see, when you read them, they see that Constantine is ushering in the eschaton. And I don't mean kind of, this is the eschaton. Now, they believe that Jesus is going to come, but Constantine is going to set this whole thing up. And what is going to happen, because this is the end time, this is Psalm 2, Jesus is coming to rule with a rod of iron. Okay, a rod of iron, he's going to crush the nations, okay? That's, that's what has happened with him. And so the Christians are ruling an empire. I mean, it's, you know, Rome is the biggest empire around. It's massive. Uh, has a, uses a lot of violence. So Christians have to decide, okay how, okay, how do we reconcile what Jesus and the early church has said with this responsibility now to rule an empire that we believe is the eschaton? It, we are now ushering in the end. And now is the time for Christians to wield, you know, the, the, the rod that's going to crush the nations. It was a belief in the eschatology that caused Christians, namely the guys that I was, and others, but the luminaries like Ambrose, Eusebius, and Augustine, to say that it's different now. Christians can pick up the sword because Jesus is, is ruling with a rod of iron through Constantine, and ultimately, we're going to take over the entire world. I mean, that's the eschaton, right? You don't, you don't back off from the eschaton. This is this is the takeover of the world. It, you know, it's, it's the coming of the millennium. And so because of their eschatological views and they were running an empire, they said, okay, well, Christians need to pick up a can and need to pick up the sword. It's right and proper. And the guy that really works it out in great detail is uh, Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo. And in particular, in his letter to Boniface, he lays it out explicitly. He said, yes, Christians before Constantine had to live non-resistantly. Christians had to be non-resistant. 
No question about it in all ways. Now, it's interesting. He he'd still believed that you had to be non-resistant in your personal life. You could not be violent to save your own life. And he was very clear on that. But it was permissible to go to war for the, for the state and kill for the state. And like I said, this is all decided on. The decision was made because of their, their view of eschatology. Now, the thing is, there is nothing left of Christendom. It's gone. Of course, Christendom is what uh, Constantine ushered in, the merge of church and state. There's nothing left of Christendom. So their belief that the eschaton was ushered in by Constantine was not true. Their eschatology was absolutely dead wrong. Mm -hmm. And so their justification for Christians picking up the sword was also wrong because they based it on their view of eschatology. And so if I were to bring back Augustine and show him the world today, he would see without a doubt, there's nothing left of Christendom. It's gone. And hence, it was not the eschaton. And hence, it was not the year of Psalm 2, where the Christ comes to rule with a rod of iron. And he would have to say, based on his other things, the, the things he said, especially in Letter to Boniface, Christians must live non-resistantly today and can't have anything to do mm. with state violence. It, it's, it's so simple to see how it all happened. It was a flawed view of eschatology. It gives you an idea how important theology can be. You know, some people say that theology is just dry and not applicable. I, I got news for you. What you believe to be true about God and our duty before him will determine how you live yeah. every single day. And, and so that, that's, how, that's how the change came about. And that was one of the key things. You know, this thing, uh, like I said, what convinced me was seeing, taking Jesus straight up, seeing that the early church uniformly, with no exceptions, embraced non-resistance. And this last thing, how the church abandoned non-resistance back in uh, the reign of uh, Constantine. It, it's just, it's just so clear. You know, they're just, I, I just, I had no defense against the, the, those things at all. I, I, just anecdotally, I have a good friend who recently decided he needed to be non-resistant and, and take it very seriously. Mm -hmm. This fellow is 68 years old and he's a Presbyterian pastor. He's a Calvinist. They don't have any, generally Calvinists and Presbyterians don't have any trouble with fighting for the state. Well, when he first, when I first linked up with him after not seeing him for about 40 some years and I was talking about non-resistance, he called me a heretic and I was crazy. And I said, you know, just look at this, you know, you know, read Jesus clearly, you know, look at what the Antonician said, you know, uh, the early church said about non-resistance and we know why it changed. And you know what? <laughs> he came around. Mm. A 68 year old Presbyterian pastor he said, yeah, we have to live non-resistantly. He was convinced by those things. And you know, we just... You know, we can talk about these exceptions. What about this? What about this? You know, I want to bring people back to, okay, what about Jesus? What about the uniform witness of the other church? And we also know why it changed. What are you going to do with that? Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting that we can talk about the exceptions, but what's the core belief? What's the core essence of being a follower of Jesus? And this is one of them. It is. And it's certainly... It reminds me of when people jump to, well, what about this? What about that? It's like, well, are these gotcha questions? Or are you really trying to follow the way of Jesus? And then, you know, on, on occasion, you might end up with a different decision from how I would handle it or how, how you would handle it. Right. But it's almost as though our default mode is how can we fit in the ethics of Jesus into the way that we hope to live our life now? 
rather than how do we change the hope in which we have and live in that way, in the way of Jesus. Now, I don't claim to have any corner on the market, so to speak, with respect to following Jesus non-resistantly and non-violently. It's not like, I mean, it's not like I've shot anybody or anything, but like, it's not like I haven't entertained the idea that if someone were to break into my house, I would, I would possibly, you know, kill them uh, if, if that had to be done. I don't know what I would do. Now, I've chosen to live my life in such a way that, that I don't really have to make that choice and I live in a pretty safe uh, environment. But at the same time, it's also something that I have wrestled with. It's like, oh, well, what, what do I do here? Because I do believe in following Jesus and how does that apply in this situation? Does it mean this? Does it mean that? So as, as we, th- we can think about that on a personal level, the one thing that I know that our conversation is going to shift toward here is the, the idea of church and state relationships. Uh, or the relation between the church and state. And there's something that you talk about in your book about the state being demonic. And this is not a new idea to our listeners, Uh um, but I just want to get your thoughts on the nature of the state and what what is it that you do theologically with respect to the nature of the state? Right, right. That that's uh, that's actually that whole concept uh, takes up three chapters in the book on uh, called church and the book Church and State. And it's a very important one. And I start off talking about the principalities and powers. And that's a term that shows up a lot in Paul's writings. And I spend quite a lot of time, you know, talking about that. And just to back up a little bit and talk about something that uh, the Apostle John talks about. And 1 John 5, 19, he says, the whole world, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Paul talks about, you know, the world, a wicked and perverse generation. Jesus talks about that too. And uh, Paul talks about in Romans 3 what the unsaved are like. And uh, it's not pretty. Uh, Let me see if I can get that. Romans chapter 3. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And this describes all governments, virtually all people who have not submitted to the Lordship of Christ. But certainly, uh, leaders of governments, they, they don't know the way of peace. They're swift to shed blood and, and, and so forth. And so that's characteristic of the principalities and powers. And Paul talks about these principalities and powers, these, these, these world forces, these demonic forces. It's the, it's the combining of demonic forces with, with evil men in positions of power. What Lord Acton, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, you know, it, duh, yeah. We see that. <laughs> Pretty easy thing to notice nowadays. If you, <laughs> you, you, would, you would think. Uh, not, not so much with most people, it seems. But, but anyhow, there's these principalities and powers. And Paul identifies them. It, the law of Moses was a principality and power that oppressed. He says, families can be oppressive. Uh, you know, families can have very bad uh, views of things, and they teach their children these things, and the, the families can be oppressive. I mean, churches, religious are often horribly oppressive. You have states, you have uh, financial systems, like what we have, you know, the Federal Reserve, that monstrosity, and the national banks, and so forth, and, and so on, and on, and on, and on. And 
the state, the modern nation state combines all these things together, right? The umbrella is, is it's the umbrella. It's like a pantheon of, all of, of these principalities things. and powers. Yes. And it seems clear to me, and I think other people, that the modern nation state is chief among the principalities and powers of oppressed men. That being so, you know, I need, I need to prove that, right? <laughs> right, I can, I can say it. But when you look at history and that, that one chapter, well, the three chapters are important, is the principalities and powers, the nature of the state, the scope and purpose of the state, and then the nature of the state. Those last two argue why I would claim that the state, modern nation state, is one of the principalities and powers, that it is the chief principality and power. You know, when you look at what the state, talking about what the scope and purpose of the state uh, from a scriptural standpoint, it's really narrow. It's really narrow. You know, you got Romans 13. The state has been given the sword to punish evil, protect the innocent. Got it. And then you go over to First Timothy and First uh, Peter. They're saying essentially the very same thing, and we're supposed to obey them insofar as their laws and commands don't vo- cause us to violate Jesus' commands. And so, you know, the state usually far exceeds its biblical mandate, right? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's everywhere and doing everything. In other words, the state wants to act like God. Right. It wants to act like God. And we see that on steroids right now. It's just unbelievable. You know, in, in particular, I have this quote, I have this comment from my, of my new book about the, the state wanting to be God the soldier is told that he must obey any lawful order given by an authorized officer. In the manual for court-martials, we read, however, the dictates of a person's conscience, religion, or personal philosophy cannot justify or excuse the disobedience of an otherwise lawful order. That's quoting from the uh, manual for courts-martials. That's if you, you disobeyed an order, mm. right? And then I said, When a young man becomes a soldier, his superior officers become his conscience and determines what is right and wrong. By forbidding personal decisions based on religious commitments, the American military either assumes that it actually acts in accordance with God's laws or that it is a God, as far as the soldier is concerned. For a committed Christian, either of these is blasphemous and would prevent any thinking Christian from entering such an organization. So you know, it's very clear that you know, the government assumes the place of God if you're going to be a soldier because you just better do what they say. It doesn't matter how many innocent people get killed. Yeah. You just better follow that order. Yeah. But it acts like God, it's God in so many other ways, especially as we become more and more socialistic. You know, they just... They tax us to death so we don't have any disposable income to care for the needy and the poor because they're, they're, they're claiming to do all that. They're telling us uh, moral degeneracy is a fine thing, you know, and circumventing the laws of God. You know, I guess it goes on and on and on. What is the common wisdom among the leaders? Of, I don't care who they are. The leaders in the American state, national self-interest, right? National self-interest. Okay, I got it. But what does Jesus say about making decisions and living for your own self-interest. Uh, you know, Jesus Jesus and the apostles think, no, Christians don't ever live like that. Mm. You know, and, and the state is all about acquiring wealth, territory, power, control. These things are absolutely non-Christian. And if they, they far exceed their biblical mandate as well, obviously doing these things. And, and so it, it acts like a, a principality in power, an oppressive principality in power that we cannot be involved in. 
you know, violence is the order of day. That's what they do. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, what, what stands behind every single law the state enacts? If you don't obey it, you're going to prison. And if you don't want to go, we're going to drag you there by force. And if you don't let us drag you and you fight us, we will kill you. Yes. yes. Yeah. So violence so, and death stands behind all their power. Jesus made it clear. We don't have anything to do with that stuff. I, I, the Christian has a, has a task. It's, it, the Christian has the most important task there is. That is the ministry of reconciliation. The wars that we fight, the politics that are going on, certainly these change people's lives. But that is a sideshow compared to what God is doing through his people and bringing out the story of redemption and, and seeing individuals saved. It's the souls of men and women that are important. It's not whether America continues to survive or we defeat this, that, or the other thing. It's as if God is glorified. And are we carrying out the ministry of reconciliation? Anything else for a Christian is just a sideshow and a waste of time. So in the remaining few minutes that we have here, I think a few objections that a lot of Christians will have, and the two that come to my mind that are, they're the most difficult to rebut, you know, like a short conversation in social media or something. Sure. Um, and that is the cleansing of the temple. And then when Jesus tells his disciples to go by a sword. Right. Well, let's talk about Jesus in the temple. Yeah, sure. Uh, wh whose temple is that? Well, it's his, for one thing. <laughs> and uh, the other, so, he, so there's two records of him driving out the money changers, right? And he makes a scourge. We are not told that he's beating people. He's turning over tables, but we're not told that he's beating people. Now, you got to remember, there's animals in there. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and, and what, what, is it, what is it likely that Jesus is doing, giving the things that he taught? Well, he's probably not hitting people and scourging them. He's probably driving out the animals. See, the, the, the other thing is, is he killing anybody? No, he's not killing anybody. Okay, and so the weight that people want that story to bear is we can go to war and kill people. <laughs> no, that no, you don't get that from that from that account. Because I think most people, to, to be fair to them, I think they would just say, "Well, you can't make a statement that Jesus taught nonviolence because of this scene in the Gospels." Well, like I said, we we don't. It's it doesn't it doesn't say that he was striking people. He was driving out uh, the animals and the money changers and turning over tables. Okay. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we could say is that he's Jesus and you're not. And Jesus commanded his people to live non-resistantly and love enemies. Uh, is there any other thing to discuss? Yeah, fair. No, I, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, no, um, I, 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 I know. I guess, yeah. No, this, this is very, very good because they'll do that. The, the, the other ways to look at it are, that I just presented are perfectly clear. I mean, they're, they're just, it's just easy. So for someone to, to, to subvert Jesus's clear teachings, the epistles clear teachings by the apostles and then the early churches, uh, you know, uh, agreement with it. Reading that story differently just does not, yeah. does, is not able to carry the day. I mean, these other things are just crushing to that, to that particular telling of that story. The other thing is that people say, well, well, Jesus, before, when they go to the garden of Gethsemane, right before he dies, you know, he says, uh, you know, talks about, you know, sell your sell stuff and bring, bring, buy swords. And they come, the, the apostles come to him and say, hey, we got two swords. And Jesus says, that's enough. Well, what's it enough for? Jesus knows he's going to be carried away to be crucified, right? He doesn't have, it's clear what happens. He has no interest in fighting anybody. Right. He's going to let them, he's going to let them carry him away. 
Okay, so what in the world are two swords good for? It's certain, even if Jesus had, was, he wasn't, but let's, let's pretend that Jesus, okay, we're going to fight our way out of this. What in the world are two swords going to do against the, the soldiers that come to take him? It's a bunch well, of people. Well, and not only that, you have the statement that like, you know, Jesus could have a legion of angels take him off the cross. Like, does yeah. Jesus even need two swords to defeat this well, little? Exactly. Yeah. So clearly, it's not possible that he intends for these swords to be used in battle. It's not possible to read that pericope that way. So what are, the, what are the two swords enough for? They're enough to have an object lesson. And Peter takes that one sword and cuts this ear off the chief priest's servant. And Jesus turns around and said, Peter, put that thing back away in, your, in, the, in its uh, scabbard. He says, those who live by the sword die by it. Yeah. So the swords were good. They were sufficient to teach his apostles don't be violent. Listen to what I already said. That's what it was sufficient for. I mean, nothing else makes any sense. Tertullian, the famous uh, Antonisian, he says that when Jesus told Peter to put away the sword, he disarmed every single Christian. And he did. That's what it was enough for. The other thing is, the other uh, stories that are used to subvert Jesus' teaching is Peter's coming to Cornelius. Uh, the Roman centurion in the book of Acts. You know, he's got, uh, Cornelius says he's, he's uh, a God-fearer. He's a, he's a uh, Gentile, but he's a God-fearer, very favorable to the Jewish religion. And uh, he, Peter is called to go to Cornelius. And he goes to Cornelius's home and the family, and he tells them the gospel, and they become saved, and they're baptized. And people say, well, Peter didn't tell him not to, uh, n- not to be a soldier anymore. Well, yeah, that's true. But he also didn't tell Cornelius not to be involved in any military pagan practices. And centurions, one of their jobs was to preside over regularly a worship of the emperor. Okay? Hmm. All right. Now, we know that's idolatry, right? That's, that's pretty simple. You know, you don't be part of a, of a ritual that is worshiping a, a man as God. And so do you think that because Peter didn't tell him not to do that, that it was okay to do? Well, no, the scriptures are very clear about idolatry. And I'm certain that if that's, that Cornelius, given if he was, you know, he actually became a Christian, he was not participating in those things anymore. The other thing is, this, you know, well, he didn't, like I said, he, did, he didn't tell him not to be a soldier. Well, Jesus had a lot to say about that. Mm. And given the prevailing beliefs in Christianity at that time and that Jesus, you know, had, had died shortly before that and lived a life of non-resistance, commanded his people to be non-resistance, resistant. Well, what do you think Cornelius was going to be doing? He was going to be living non-resistantly. I mean, you did, you really, when something is that clearly taught in the scriptures, when you have an argument from silence, which is what this is, well, he didn't say not to be involved in, you know, military things anymore. If arguments of silence tell us absolutely nothing, they are the weakest arguments that we can put forward. Mm-hmm. And so given the body of evidence of what we know scripturally and historically, yeah, he was not, if he was going to follow Christ for real, he was not going to be a soldier. He was not going to be killing people. So, you know, these, these things just, there's others, they just, they just fall apart when you just analyze them a tiny bit. And sadly, most people don't do that. 
Yeah, I think the the problem is often proof texting and just like yeah. quoting a verse and and be like, oh hey, what you know, googling what does Jesus say about swords because yeah. you can't say guns because there were no guns, and be like, oh well, Jesus says go buy a sword, really? <laughs> right, right. Well, um, you know, if you if you if you take, I remember when I was a teenager, they they would say that you know you can take any verse out of context or you can take anything in the Bible out of context, and as proof, they said, did you know that the Bible says there is no God? And we're like, what? You know, like you know, youth group <laughs> trying to get it. And if right. if you if you know what I'm referring to, it says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, right? So like it's like you gotta embrace the wider context. Right. Uh to to understand in reality what's being communicated, not just in that story, but then, you know, like what you said, there's a lot of the narrative of Christ and the teachings of Christ don't leave room for anything beyond non-resistance and we have to find the other things that might seem or appear different to be like, well, something else is going on here. Yeah, well, I think that uh, one of the things that's going on is the very, very powerful salvation story that America tells that, like I said, is really compelling and an awful lot of people uh, believe it. Let's face it, like like for me, I I can't believe I made it to Christian non-resistance because I grew up in a very militaristic home. Uh, the soldiers were practically saints, as far as my father was concerned. And this was the world I grew up in. The church I grew up in was not overly militaristic. They, they didn't think war was fun, great and, you know, that soldiers were practically saints. But they didn't really, they, they never really talked about Jesus' commands that we had to live non-resistently. If they did, my father wouldn't have gone there. But America's salvation story goes something like this. America is a unique nation established by God at its founding. America has been a benevolent Christian nation nation that has brought freedom to the world and fought victorious wars over unspeakable evil, securing the freedom of Americans and other peoples as well. For the Christian, America's military has secured our right to worship. America has saved the world. And this, this story sounds really good and is believed by many, but none of it's true. It's a devious lie. And it's this salvation story that keeps millions of Christians from deciding to believe Jesus, which is unbelievably tragic because as I work out in my, my last book, Christianity, War, and America's Salvation Story, that story is a lie. And you can prove it easily from history. I mean, it is not hard at all. You just have to be willing to hear it and listen to it. The other thing, like I said, the other one of the things that's really behind it is his salvation story. And it's it's straight from hell. I mean, Satan is behind it all. Like I said earlier, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But you know, Jesus says at the end near uh, the end of the of his time with the apostles at the Last Supper, he says, In this world you will have tribulation, but fear not, I have overcome the world. And so Jesus is still the ruler. He permits Satan. Like I said, Paul said, or uh, John said, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But he's still in charge. He's permitting that for a season, but he will come back someday and set up his kingdom and everybody will live non-resistantly. And like I said, there's this division of labor between Christians and the world. We, li- we have to live non-resistantly because we have been given the ministry of reconciliation, which is far more important than anything the state can tell us to do, certainly killing enemies. And the right thing to do, the wise thing to do, is simply follow Jesus and forget about the consequences because, like Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so I got it. No problem. Jesus rules. He will win. 
but right now he's letting evil powers do their thing, and he's going to put a stop to that at some point. But our ministry is the Ministry of Reconciliation, which is the most important ministry on the planet since Jesus came. Well, I think that's a pleasant place to end. I think it's encouraging for us to know what our role is, what our ministry is as believers. And uh, I appreciate you, Dr. Lewis, coming on and uh, talking to us about this. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I look forward to talking to you guys again. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.